Welcome to Failing Forward. Christina, can you introduce yourself for the audience today? Sure. I am Christina Sinovitz. I lead our evaluation and adoptive learning practice at Results for Development and have been with the organization for over 13 years at this point. And why is it important for us to talk about failure? What inspired you to join us here today? Um, I think that failure is an incredibly important topic for folks to be open and honest about because it allows us to reflect on our actual lived experience and what worked, what didn't, why and how and how to kind of move things forward um, based on what we've learned through that lived experience. Um, I think there's also something about being open and honest about failures that requires a bit of vulnerability and trust in engagements, whether it's with yourself or with other folks and kind of processing and reflecting um, on the different experiences. And I think that's something that is just incredibly invaluable in helping us to move towards better places moving forward. Tell us about the example you're going to talk about today. Uh, so I have been working with some colleagues of mine in pulling together a paper that reflects on just our evaluation and adaptive learning practices overall experience um, in thinking about this question around how do you get rigor right? Maybe just to back up a little bit and tie it back to your first question. Um, our practice or our team was really formed with the premise that it's important to learn from your failures, to fail fast. A lot of the language that I think is currently really popular within the development space. Um, but that was based on some of our individual experiences working in international development. Um, there were three of us, one from our governance practice, one from our education practice, and then myself from our health practice. Um, where we all had been working in the M&E space in different ways and seen a lot of the real challenges or failures within that. Um, and so for me, I had been commissioned to pull together uh, a set of performance tracking indicators for impact investors pretty sure that those indicators never really saw the light of day um, just because it's really hard to develop something that kind of general for actual decision making processes. I also was getting contacted by implementers uh, constantly basically with questions around how to use all of the data that they were collecting, feeling like they were putting it into reports for donors, but then not really knowing what to do with that information beyond that. And then one of my other colleagues was working on a multi-country um, RCT where there were a lot of questions around millions of dollars that were being invested into this RCT design. And 
whether this intervention or series of interventions was really at the point where it was actually appropriate to have that level of investment in experimental design. Um, and spoiler alert, the RCT came up with a null result as well. Um, and then another colleague in the ed space who was kind of working um, on carrying out process evaluations for funders and really seeing the challenges um, with being an external evaluator uh, in working with implementing partners and frankly being seen almost as like the enemy, someone very much on the outside that's carrying um, around a check the box exercise of accountability. Um, and so through that, I think we all saw a lot of the limitations within the monitoring and evaluation space and a lot of opportunity to reframe research tools, to think much more concretely about how do we use research, monitoring, and evaluation to actually support learning, um, concrete decision-making, answering questions that some of the country actors and partners that we engage with actually need answered in order to improve program design on an ongoing basis. And so we borrowed a lot from some of the different um, other movements that were happening like human-centered design, agile thinking, um, and coupled some of that with a lot of our own kind of more rigorous research experience and then experience just engaging and working directly with implementing partners and other country actors um, to think about this question of, all right, it's not necessarily getting this answer of like, is this program working or not? Or is this activity working or not? But how do we get the right kind of feedback at the right time to answer the right questions? That was a very long spiel to get to the point that I think through the eight years of experience and working on this practice, um, what we found is just um, there is definitely an approach that has evolved in helping to think through how do you actually get rigor right? What are the right methods to use at the right time? If it isn't appropriate to use an RCT all the time, what are the other methods that are available? And then when should an RCT come to play? And so I think that's kind of what I was excited about to talk with you today around is um, some of our thinking that's captured in this paper around this question of how do you actually get rigor right? And what are some of the rigor wrong? I think that it often falls at two extremes. One is either focusing too much on getting as much rigor built into the study or research design as possible, regardless of whether it's appropriate at that moment or not, just because I think folks associate rigor with more confidence in your ability to trust the results. And then I think the other extreme is almost just throwing your hands up in the air and saying, oh, we can't afford something that's super rigorous and leaning much more on tacit knowledge and experience rather than actually finding ways to use 
research, evidence, data in ways that can help with learning and decision-making on an ongoing basis. I've found that those are very extreme examples, but that folks fall often um, at those two extremes and don't really understand what the spectrum of options is in between those. What are the consequences when that happens, when somebody gets rigor wrong? I think there are a number of potential consequences. One is just that you don't end up getting answers that you need to the questions that you care about. And it could be that you get helpful answers, but it just doesn't come back in time. Um, or that it doesn't even answer the question of what you really care about. Like, I think you see a lot of this in the use of quant methods where um, folks are ultimately most interested in what mixed methods can tell you to better unpack the why and the how and the when and the where um, more qualitative or contextual components. Um, so I think that's kind of one piece. I think the other is that when folks experience that, that they start to mistrust um, what research can do for them. Um, I mean, we've seen this a lot with different partners that we've engaged with, where I think folks have experienced so many more traditional approaches to ME, where the research is really for contributing to the global evidence base or supporting a funding decision, um, and not about supporting the actual partner that you're engaged with in some way. And as a result, there's a lot of trust that's broken and fear of how these kinds of methods are being used. Um, I think another is just wasted resources, especially for these questions where folks invest in really rigorous research methods. And then the answers that they get don't ultimately help to inform real decision making moving forward. And again, this can be because the answers come too late or the answer is, well, it worked at this context at this time, but that doesn't mean that it will work elsewhere. And so because of that, you can invest so much money into this kind of research that ultimately doesn't really move um, on the ground work and activities and thinking forward quite as much. And I think that can be another consequence as well. Talk <laughs> about how it could be possible that a really rigorous design would show a null finding there would be other findings that are also true. What's the context in which that happens? I actually might pivot away from the example we were talking about before to another one that we're currently moving forward where our partner came to us and they said, we're really interested because we have funded this program um, with a lot of money and we want to do an impact evaluation to better understand, like, are there specific pieces of that program that are actually working or not? And so we said, okay, we can do that impact evaluation for you, but we will not just do the impact evaluation. We're also going to find some of these learning opportunities alongside 
the impact evaluation that's focusing on that one intervention. And so in this specific example, I think it's a little bit unique or different in that it's not looking at the same exact component of the program, but more looking at the program overall, seeing, all right, what's the piece or component of it that is best suited for an RCT or randomized control trial? And then what are the pieces where there's just, frankly, a lot more uncertainty and a lot more learning questions where we have more of the freedom and flexibility to experiment with those design components um, and then also where the program would really benefit from doing some of this experimentation and adaptive learning and rapid testing of what those different activities could look like. In that example, um, what we're doing is for the program, having kind of one impact evaluation that focuses on a specific piece of the program that we feel more confident in. Um, and that's where kind of the more rigorous evaluation activities are being applied. And then the whole series of what we're calling sandboxes around the different areas where I think there's a lot more uncertainty and a lot more room to play, which is why we're using the term sandboxes um, and building in some of that experimentation and fail fast mentality and partnership with the implementing partners. Um, I don't know if that exactly gets at your question or not, but I, that's definitely something that came to mind in thinking about how to kind of mirror a rigorous evaluation approach with something that's a little bit, it's lower on the rigor spectrum, more learning focused, um, and they're able to kind of exist side by side with the same set of partners within the same program, et cetera. What are some of the reasons that very rigorous evaluations fail sometimes? Why does that happen? There are a number of different factors for that. Um, I think one, and we talked a little bit about this before, is just that the intervention itself isn't quite, quote unquote, ready. Like there might be a lot of a sense that we want to do something as rigorous as possible and there are pressures from the funder side or um, the government side, who knows where exactly it's coming from. Um, but the program itself isn't really, or the intervention itself, isn't really at a place where it's demonstrated a lot of success. And so moving into something that is kind of a more rigorous evaluation approach is almost premature. It's putting the cart before the horse. Um, and also, frankly, setting up the team for a bit of failure and um, getting results that show, hey, this actually isn't working. Um, I think there's just a lot and our Getting Rigor Right paper touches explicitly on this around the importance of finding the right set of methods for the kinds of questions that you are asking um, and the type of or the level of certainty that you actually have within um, your program or activity area of focus. And so you know, when folks are jumping towards super rigorous evaluation approaches that can be appropriate, but you have to be sure that you're actually applying the right criteria to make that decision and assess that is kind of the right set of methods. Um, I think a lot of times we've seen folks 
jump towards more rigorous methods and at the end of the day end up wasting a lot of money, time, and effort um, that could have been better spent towards lower rigor approaches that would have gotten them results faster, um, that would have answered questions more directly relevant to the kinds of things that they wanted to better understand. I say that with the recognition that I, with higher rigor approaches, there are there's still a whole array of questions that you can ask. Um, and there are also still a ton of learning opportunities that can be had um, with higher rigor approaches. But I think the biggest dimension that we've kind of seen through our experience is this question of level of certainty that you have um, around just how strong this activity is that you have in place. Like, are there a lot of assumptions that are built into that where you need some assumption busting to better understand, is this actually going to work moving forward or not? And if you feel pretty confident, then like, sure, investing in something much more rigorous, which tends to also be much more expensive and time intensive um, and methodologically um, uh, complex, um, that may be appropriate, but that isn't the case in all cases. And it's really important to think through those different dimensions. How do you get rigor right? What are some of your key recommendations? Uh, I mentioned kind of this dimension of uncertainty and really looking at how certain you feel about the specific program activity or intervention. And we've tried to unpack that in a number of different ways because we recognize that certainty can mean a lot of different things to different people. And so I think understanding like how much is the context actually going to change um, within the program that is operating in this area? Like, are there a lot of changes that are happening within the broader context, or do you feel like there's a lot of stability there? Then there's this dimension of maturity and just how mature the program or interventions in and of themselves are. Is this something where you're in a very new and different design phase? These are brand new ideas and you're really experimenting, or is this something that has been in place for a long time and you have a hunch that like this is working and working well? Um, and then there's this question around um, quantitative precision. And so do you need really narrow confidence intervals? Or are you just looking for more general idea um, or information moving forward on like, does this seem to be in the right direction or not? And then this last piece of urgency um, of like, I need this information right now in order to make a decision or, you know, I want this information, but like I can take my time in order to find out how well something is working or not. And I almost see these as different dials along the certainty matrix where um, in order to better understand kind of the level of rigor that is most relevant, you need to turn the dials up or down to then figure out, okay, the more certain I am around more dimensions, the more rigorous I can be in the different activities that I'm actually taking on and vice versa. Um, and I think in terms of specific examples where we've seen a lot of success with the less rigorous approaches, honestly, 
the majority of the work that our team does is in experimenting with these lower rigor approaches, just because I think there are a lot of organizations that are out there that do large scale, rigorous um, impact evaluations. There aren't a lot of organizations that are thinking about these other questions of like, what are some of the other approaches that are applicable at the lower end of the spectrum in terms of when it comes to rigor. And so for us, what's been the most successful is when we have worked really closely with the partner to better understand. And we often use like a theory of change approach for this, which is really articulating like what are they ultimately trying to achieve? What are the activities that they think will get them um, to that outcome? And then what are the underlying assumptions within that? And that we go through that process to then tease out, okay, it seems like you have a lot of questions about the link between this activity and this outcome and actually co-designing learning questions based on that. And then from there, almost pulling together a menu of options for the partners that we're working with, both in terms of here are the series of learning questions that we could focus on, like we need your help in prioritizing which you actually would want to better understand understand moving forward, and then a series of options in terms of the methods that could come into play. Um, and so we'll actually pull together options memos that say, all right, we could do something that is a rapid RCT. Here's what it will get you. Here's what it will not. Um, or we could do something in the form of lean testing and rapid prototyping. Um, and we will have some recommendations for kind of the method that we see as most relevant moving forward, um, but ultimately work in partnership with our partners to figure out um, how to ultimately land on the right design moving forward and how to better understand, you know, what is the most appropriate level of rigor. And then if we take something that's a little bit no, more non-traditional, that we are doing that in very close partnership with our partner. That's something that as an implementing partner, I wish more people were doing. So often somebody comes to us and it might be a researcher, it might be a donor, it might be a partner and says, this is the best evaluation method. This is the mm -hmm. thing. And they spend a lot of time pitching the solution they've already decided on. Mm. That idea of having a menu and saying, these are the pros and cons of this one. Here are the pros and cons of another. Let's talk about what makes the most sense for what's happening here. I really wish more people were doing that. You know, we tried in the paper to pull together a list or a menu of different options and have it kind of correlated to the level of certainty or uncertainty. But I also want to acknowledge and recognize that like the framework we've presented has limitations in that there's so much decision making that needs to happen that is super nuanced through the discussions that you have with your partners. And that even with something that is much more rigorous, like there are ways to design them to be nuanced and to inform decision making. You know, we had this one pilot in Cambodia where ultimately there was a lot of interest in RCT design. And so, um, you know, we had a number of conversations around looking at other kinds of options. And we're also successful in kind of taking an 
approach to build on the level of rigor, starting with formative research, moving into lean testing, and then ultimately getting to kind of this more rigorous design. But we were able to do something that was like a decision-focused RCT. It was an RCT that was conducted over the span of like two or three months, which is just like a very different experience than I think many folks have had. And so um, I think that's the other thing to note too, is like the framework presents a very simple reality, but I completely recognize that there are a lot of nuances and a lot of creativity and how this can actually be applied in reality. So if you had a magic wand and you could say, here are things I wish people would change about what they're doing now, what are mm-hmm. two or three of those things? Oh gosh, I know what my number one answer would be. Um, and this is very much coming from the biased perspective of really believing in the value of learning and learning for the partners that we are engaging with um, rather than kind of the global evidence base or the literature. Um, But I think for me, the biggest challenge or gap is in trying to find the soft skills to build that trust in order to get to a place where learning is possible. I think what's hard about research in m and is that it really requires a certain set of harder skills um, around certain measurement methodologies and things. And the thing that I have learned in this whole experience is just the importance of the relationships and the trust building to ever get to a point of not even getting the learnings to be applied, but ensuring that you're answering true learning questions that folks want to better understand because it requires a bit of vulnerability. I think to me is the piece that I wish was emphasized a lot more and that there was a lot more focus on that component, um, just because I think when that nut is cracked, those have been far and away the most successful engagements that we've had. Um, So I would say that is one. I think the second is um, better understanding that the overall experience doesn't have to get to concrete result. I would say that for many of our engagements, kind of the most impactful part of the process, even when we've gotten to the point of, say, a rapid RCT and have done a number of other kinds of activities with folks, has been that upfront design stage where we've invested a lot of time in better understanding what is the theory of change, what are the underlying assumptions, and what are the learning questions And that in and of itself has had the greatest impact in getting folks to really see the value of learning and in shifting um, partners' understanding of how research and evidence and data can be used to support their work on the ground. Um, And so I think 
more time and importance given to that upfront design stage rather than kind of the end state, you know, the final study result that you're able to get to. Um, that's something that I would love, love, love to see more um, support around. And then the third is, I think there's a real interest now that folks are talking a lot about participatory research in um, finding ways for INGOs in particular to quote unquote lead from behind or strengthen capacity of partners around um, different research and m and methodologies. And I, I love the direction that the um, everything is moving in. I also think that funders often assume that um, capacity strengthening activities and working in um, partner with other actors means cheaper work and faster work. And I very much believe the capacity can't be strengthened through a PowerPoint presentation or, you know, a two-hour webinar. It's something that really requires that kind of intense engagement and trust building and experiential um, components. And so I think as there's more and more discussion around what exactly that looks like, finding ways to be open to different, more intensive ways of doing capacity strengthening and monitoring evaluation and learning activities. That's kind of the other piece that I would be super excited to see. I love all of that. One of my questions, because you brought up this idea of the participatoriness and it's not actually cheaper or faster, nor should we expect it to be. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we've been trying to make a commitment to is making sure we're sharing research back with the communities that were part of it in the first place. So instead of going in, running a survey, walking away and never coming back, mm -hmm. saying, this is your data. It's your life experience. Here's what we saw. A big part of what we see there is actually we consistently fail to translate those results in ways that are meaningful to community members. And I would argue that means we're probably not translating them very well, even for implementers or anyone else who's supposed to be using that data. So if you go back to a community somewhere and you say, look, here's the regression table of what yeah. we found about your life, <laughs> yeah, that's not going to be meaningful to them. And that's one of the gaps we run up against all the time. Do you have any recommendations about how to get through that? Yeah, for sure. And I will also be honest in saying this is definitely a learning area for us. I think that we've done a lot in thinking about the evidence translation um, kinds of approaches that we've done, but I still think that there's a lot more room for improvement, especially in going back to some of the different community members that participate in um, the data that's being collected and finding ways to circle back and share, not just share the evidence with them, but also find ways that they can use this um, in different ways. And so um, definitely something that we're really focused on now. I will say that, you know, one of my favorite models that we've um, experimented with is the idea of a collective impact model. Um, where you're pulling together not just the implementing partners, but all of the like representatives from key stakeholder groups to think through what is the overarching theory of change that you're trying to accomplish? How does everyone's individual activity feed into that? And then what is the overall measurement and learning framework 
for everyone to come back together at regular intervals and actually track, okay, how are we progressing um, as a government representative, as a funded implementing partner, as a community leader, and um, along this theory of change to actually get to these outcomes. And so there's definitely a collective responsibility um, and just shared interest in everyone contributing to kind of the evidence base and tracking progress. Um, and also that kind of shared openness and trust that happens through that experience with everyone seeing kind of broader representation and openness and honesty and vulnerability there. So that's been one model that's been really successful. And I know I highlighted earlier the importance of the upfront design stage. I think for that, just being really clear to the extent possible about who are the different folks that are going to be um, implicated, I guess, in the different research designs and the specific questions um, of focus related to the program activities and interventions um, and finding ways to include them in that process. And for our example in Cambodia, we actually trained some of the social workers on lean testing methodologies to actually go out and carry um, out focus group discussions and prototypes of different campaign visuals. So that's kind of one example of how that was done. Um, and then there are other examples of just developing um, advisory boards with representation from different community areas where the research is going to take place to ensure that um, those leaders are able to provide input into some of the equity implications of the research in addition to just providing feedback on like the ethics of the overall design. And then most importantly, being a key part of kind of the evidence translation process. Um, so I think that there are a lot of different ways to approach that, but I think it's a challenge and something that we haven't perfectly solved quite yet. Christina, thanks so much for your time with us today. Thank you.